0: Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Samuel chapter 7. We've been moving through the book, and uh, we've seen uh, Israel suffer uh, a great loss. Um, their uh, faithlessness, inability to follow God, uh, led to the loss of the ark, the death of Eli, uh, the death of Phinehas and Hophni. Uh, just a a general collapse on just about every level uh, in their culture. But we saw last week that God is bigger than us. God is bigger than our limitations. God is bigger than our constraints. God is bigger than um, our view. We saw God moving outside of Israel in Philistia to exact His will, to express His presence to communicate His power and majesty. And so in chapter 6 we see um, the ark being sent back by, by the Philistines. Um, they're no longer wanting it in their presence. Uh, and given what uh, God was doing through it, uh, that's not surprising. I would not want it around me either. And they send it back and When we get to verse 17, we see how Israel responds now to the presence of the ark. And what transpires in the rest of chapter 6 and on into chapter 7 can only be described as a revival. Now, what do we mean when we say revival? We have a lot of different concepts. Sometimes people mean a specific type of service or meeting. Sometimes people refer to it in terms of uh, you have several conversions happening in your midst, in your congregation, uh, in, in a certain uh, amount of time. Uh, sometimes people simply mean the church itself has awakened. The word itself simply means to bring back to life that which was dead or stagnant. And we see that here in uh, Israel, certainly. we see. As we head into chapter 7, a a, a massive transformation of their hearts, their minds. And I want to look at that this morning, but I want to look at it in in terms of the context of of us. In terms of our desire for a revival. No doubt you have heard, if you're uh, at all in kind of the, the, the Christian social media and so forth, you've heard of what's going on at Asbury. Uh, in Asbury, Kentucky, uh, we have at the, the university there, uh, this is a this is a, a picture from their chapel. Um, and it, this is simply clipped out of a, a newspaper report, a secular newspaper, that says that students have packed the chapel and overflow spaces at Asbury University for nearly a week, holding round-the-clock prayer and worship. And you have this... Uh, sort of event taking place here. And it's not uncommon to Asbury. Asbury, coming from a, a holiness background, um, uh, is given to this sort of uh, activity. And, and you have a lot of questions as to exactly what exactly is going on here. Is this revival? Is this something else? Is it just an extended worship service? Um, you know, what, what is going on here? What? How do we understand it? And I think it is appropriate. I think scripture encourages us uh, to test the spirits. I think Scripture encourages us to evaluate uh, circumstances and situations. That's not my my purpose here this morning. My purpose here this morning is simply to say that when you have an event like this, it becomes quite um, the focus of the church because, because we want revival. We all want it. I don't know a single person that you walk up to and say, Man, would you like to see revival in church? Are gonna say, "Nah, you know what? I'm, I'm kind of good with how it is." <laughs> I don't, I don't think that person exists. We all want revival, okay? And and the way this began began at Esbury was is, is something interesting. I mean, after a chapel service one day, a group of twenty students and the praise and worship team felt compelled just to continue singing and praying. Uh, and after a couple hours of being there, the president of the school sent out an email to the students inviting them to go join them. And it's been going on for over a week now. Um, We all want this. We all want to feel something more, perhaps, than we're feeling. To experience something greater Perhaps we're experiencing. We've read the stories of revivals of yesteryear. Perhaps we've been involved in some of those where the church grew in numbers, the community itself was transformed and changed. How do we get there? How does ri- revival occur? What is the road to revival? Well, I think one of the first things we see in our passages is actually in the last half of or last part of chapter 6. Israel has received back the ark, and beginning in verse 17, it says, As a guilt offering to the Lord, the Philistines had sent back one gold tumor for each city, Ashdod, Gaza, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron. The number of gold mice also corresponded to the number of Philistine cities of the five rulers, the fortified cities of the outlying villages. The large rock on which the Ark of the Lord was placed is still in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh today. Now God struck down the people of Bethshemesh because they looked inside the Ark of the Lord. He struck down 70 persons. The people mourned because God struck them with a great slaughter. The, Lord, the people of Beth Shemesh asked, Who is able to stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom should be should the ark go from here? Then they sent messengers to the residents of Kiriath-Eurene, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and get it. I think one of the big markers, one of the first issues in terms of the road to revival is to have a respect for God's rules. As you see, the people of Israel here begin to interact with the ark. They ignore some very clear instructions God has given about the ark in past year, past times, previous eras. How do you treat the ark? How do you carry the ark? How do you move the ark? They're ignoring all of those. Now, the translation, my translation says they look inside the ark, it's hard to know if that's exactly what happened um, because we're, we're dealing with a preposition there, uh, and the preposition generally just means they looked at the ark. But whatever is going on here, it, it's clear that they're taking the ark lightly. They're ignoring clear expressions of what God has called them to do. What God has called, how God has called them to follow concerning his presence, his rules. And for revival to begin, we have to acknowledge the reality of sin. We have to acknowledge the reality of God's rules and how often we have broken them, how we have moved away from them. When we have all our favorite responses, sometimes we rationalize. God can't really mean that I mean he can't really mean we avoid this or we avoid that. everybody does it you know can can God really mean he doesn't want us to have sex before marriage that that seems so counterintuitive. you know can God really mean that he doesn't want us to to um, uh to have relations outside of marriage? I'm a man, I got needs. You know? We're built, you know, science tells us that we're built for non-monogamy, non-monogamy whatever that means. I just made that word up, so. <laughs> and we start rationalizing these sorts of things. Does God really want me to give from my money to the church? Does he really want me or expect me to, to share my faith with other people? Doesn't he know who I am or how I'm built? I, I don't do real good talking to other people. And we rationalize. Sometimes we, we minimize when it comes to sin. It's really not that big a deal, is it? I mean, I'm not impacting anybody else. It's just me. Whatever the sin is that we're thinking of or we're, we're talking about you know what what I do doesn't impact anybody else it's it's a private sin or it's it's just me or nobody else even knows about it sometimes we try and legitimize our disobedience it's just not fair that i have to struggle with this i, I don't see anybody else struggling with it so It must be okay if it's just me, right? Or it must be okay if this is how I feel. That seems to be the the mantra of today, right? This is how I feel, and and my feelings are of utmost importance regardless of what God's Word says. This is how I feel about the situation. This is how I want the situation to go, and so therefore that's the way the situation must proceed. And as long as we have this attitude towards sin, where we're rationalizing it or minimizing it or legitimizing it, revival will never occur. Because if there's one thing revival is, it's God's authority manifesting itself in the lives of individuals here on earth. And that can't happen as long as we are the ones who are the authorities on an issue. As long as we are the ones who get to define the terms, as long as we are the ones who get to to move in the direction that we want to, regardless of what God's Word says. And so Israel learns a a very important reality here in, in the loss of these individuals. That God's authority has to come first. They lost the ark in the first place because they failed to recognize that. Now they've gotten it back some seven years later, and it seems, at least at the start here, that they haven't learned their lesson. They still see themselves as the ones in control. But the narrative continues. So the people of Kiriath-Eurim came for the ark of the Lord and took it to Abinadab's house on the hill, and they consecrated his son Eliezer to take care of it. And time went by until 20 years had passed since the ark had been taken to Kiriath-Eurim. Then the whole house of Israel longed for the Lord. Samuel told them, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, get rid of the foreign gods and the asterisks that are among you. Dedicate yourselves to the Lord and worship only him, then he will rescue you from the Philistines. So the Israelites removed the baals and the ashtaroth and only worshipped the Lord. And Samuel said, "Gather all Israel at Mitzpah, and I will pray to the Lord on your behalf." And when they gathered at Mitzpah, they drew water and poured it out on the Lord's presence, or in the Lord's presence, they fasted that day, and there they confessed, "We have sinned against the Lord." And Samuel judged the Israelites at Mizpah. And when the Philistines heard that the Israelites had gathered at Mitzvah, their rulers marched up toward Israel. When the Israelites heard about it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. The Israelites said to Samuel, Don't stop crying out to the Lord of God, our God for us, so that he will save us from the Philistines. And Samuel took a young lamb and offered as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on behalf of Israel, and the Lord answered him. Samuel was offering the burnt offering as the Philistines approached to fight against Israel. And the Lord thundered loudly against the Philistines that day and threw them into such confusion that they were defeated by Israel. Then the men of Israel charged out of Mitzvah and pursued the Philistines, striking them down all the way down to Bethkar. Afterwards, Samuel took a stone, set it upright between Mitzvah and Shin, and he named it Ebenezer, explaining that the Lord had helped us to this point. So the Philistines were subdued did not invade Israel's territory again. The Lord's hand was gained against the Philistines all of Samuel's life. The cities of Ekron to Gath, which had been taken from Israel, were restored. Israel even rescued their surrounding territories from Philistine control. There was also peace between Israel and the Amorites. What do we see here? What's going on? What led to this transformation? This is clearly a different group of people in chapter 7 than we saw at the end of chapter 6. And certainly a different group of people than what we saw back in chapter 4 when they lost the ark the first time. What has happened to them? What is happening in this moment, in this exchange, in this situation? And how does that speak to us in our search for revival? The first thing I think we see is there in verse 2, and that is that for revival to occur, there has to be a drawing of His Spirit. Just as salvation begins with God's work, revival begins with God's work. It talks about how it had been 20 years since the ark had been returned, and it says the whole house of Israel longed for the Lord wanted God. They wanted to experience Him. They wanted to see Him. They wanted to encounter Him. They longed for His presence. They longed for a real sense of His power and might. During this 20 years, they're they're under the subjugation of the Philistines. The Philistines had probably set up some rules about where they could meet and how they could meet and those sorts of things. Imposing their will and their desire on Israel as they as they wished. And Israel's tired of that enslavement. They're tired of that oppression. They're tired of that helplessness. And they've come to the realization, no doubt, after trying many different avenues, that the answer to their hurt, to their apathy, to their, their oppressive situation, was God himself. A lot of times I encounter people or I talk to people who, who are feeling oppressed, feeling depressed, feeling overwhelmed, feeling like they just don't have a sense of God's presence in their life anymore. And what I inevitably discover in, in my own life and in the lives of those that I minister to is it's because we're trying things other than God to fill that void. We're trying you know things that are not necessarily bad. you know getting more exercise or or eating better or you know um, going to church more often or reading more books or whatever it is. There's none of that that's bad. The question is simply, where is God in the midst of that? Christianity is not about the acts we do. Those are manifestations of something much bigger, which is a relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm a different man than I was 35 years ago before I met my wife. Why? Because she has changed my life. You cannot be in relationship with somebody without them having an impact on how you look at the world, how you act, how you behave, the things you do. Every relationship you have transforms you. And none, no relationship is that more true than the relationship you have with Jesus Christ. If you're looking for further transformation, you're looking for further growth, you're looking for further insight and understanding, then look to Him. Connect with Him. And that may mean going to church more often. But doing so what? With a desire to meet God there, not just to be present there because you think that's what you're supposed to do. It certainly means spending more time in prayer In a Bible study, reading God's Word. How can you know Him when you're not listening to Him? By reading what He has to say. But you see the Spirit of God begin to work in Israel here to to draw them, to to reveal to them the truth. No doubt a big part of that is, is Samuel's own ministry. He's been serving there for 20 years. We already saw earlier in the text that that God never allowed a single word of his to fall to the ground. And we noted that a big part of the problems in chapter 4 through 7 is that Samuel is completely absent from the events there surrounding the ark. He's gone. They're not reaching out to him. They're not listening to him. They're not talking to the one who God has given to reveal truth to. Second thing that leads to revival is a rejection of that which leads us astray or away from God. You got to let go of those things that are in the way, whatever that means, whatever that looks like. Here in our text, it, it mentions the 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 Baals and the Ashtaroth. There in verse 4 and in verse 3. You have this, this is a picture from from Gezer. Just, I wanted you to kind of see kind of what we're talking about here. This is a high place in Gezer. And the stones, the upright stones that you see there, those would have represented Baal. And alongside him, you see the gaps between them? Alongside them would have been wooden posts or trees then those would have represented Astereth. Now, obviously, wood doesn't last like stone does, so that's why you don't see the wood. Okay, But the Ashtoreth was the, the female deity. Baal was the male deity, and they were put side by side as an expression of fertility to bring life to their culture, to bring life to their existence. This was their worship. But just to give you a clue of how messed up this was, you see the, the square uh, item there with, the, with the, the the hole in the middle of it. That's an altar. Where they would burn their children. To Baal and Ashtoreth. Sacrifice them, run and put them in the fire. There were several bones found. Infant bones, children's bones found around this altar. Now think about that. The whole cult, the whole religion is supposed to bring fertility and what are you doing? You're killing the blessings of God and the children he's giving you. This was their practice. This is what they believed. This is what happens when you get away from God's ways. You start doing the unimaginable the unthinkable and i'm sure when they started out none of them thought oh yeah let's go do this religion cuz we want to sacrifice our children no one was thinking along those lines they were thinking we have this religion that that offers fertility and we got this religion that 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 leads to a better life now and leads to you know wealth and and prosperity and all these other things what what could go wrong with that we got this religion that's that's me-centered. Yay! I'm going to pursue that. And when your religion, when your belief, when your practice is me-centered, the only place it can lead to is death. It's the only place it can lead to. And that's where we're at today. We're a very me-centered people. Myself included. Until we're ready to turn away from that, until we're we're willing to put our trust in God instead of ourselves or in our own desires, revival's not going to come. We have to put aside, we have to reject, those things that lead us away from God. And then we have to be willing to trust God with everything. I love <clears throat> how this narrative unfolds here. Samuel's he he knows he's he's in touch with God, he's connected to God. He feels the presence of the Spirit here, and Samuel is excited. Gather all Israel at Mitzpah. I will pray to the Lord on your behalf. And the very first act, verse 6, they gathered, they drew water, and poured it out in the Lord's presence. It's the only place in the Bible you find that practice. The only place anywhere that this, is, this this practice of pouring out water is is mentioned, it's discussed, it's it's, it's not listed anywhere in the, the offerings or the sacrifices of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, it's, it's just here. Which leaves us a little bit of gap as to exactly what's going on here. Some see it as a foreshadowing of baptism, some see it as a, a picture of washing s- sins away or something like that. There might be some sense of truth to that. Having grown up in a region very similar to Israel, however, a desertous region of around Phoenix, Arizona, I have a special appreciation, I think, for water. Israel is a desertous region. They had a special appreciation for water. It was, it is, life. If you don't have water in this area, you will not last long. That's true of anywhere, but it's especially true of a desert. What I think the act represents is that Israel's saying, you know what, God, if it's a choice between you or water, I'm going to take you. And just to show that, I'm going to pour out this water right here in front of you to show that you are more important to me. Then my next breath, then my next drink of water. I think it's a proclamation, a declaration of a willingness to trust God with their future, with the very essence of the things they need. And God responds. God responds. Verse 10, it says that as Samuel is offering the burnt offering, the Philistines approached to fight, and the Lord thundered loudly against the Philistines. I don't know exactly what that looked like or what that was to experience, but something in me shudders when I read it. Not only because of the power that it displays, but because it is a fulfillment of, of Hannah's prayer, back in chapter 2, verse 10, as she's praising God, singing to God, thanking him for this child that he's been given, Samuel. She says, those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder in the heavens against them. And here, as her son carries out the offering, God thunders in the heavens against his enemies. There is always, in God's movement, a connection to the truths he's already revealed. So often we're looking for a new revelation. We're looking for some new information that's going to change things or transform things. He's given us everything we need. Jesus died for our sins. The Son of God died in your place, in my place. What more do we need? What more is there to give? The writer of Hebrews talks about this. If you were able to fall away after receiving the power of the Holy Spirit through the blood of Jesus Christ, what is there left that could save you? nothing and we see that this revival this movement here is not just a momentary issue it's not something that came and then and then went away and i think that's one of the more important markers of revivals is that that as we trust god with everything he sustains he walks he continues with us on our journey when samuel plants The stone there, he names it what? Ebenezer. Thus far the Lord has brought us. He's brought us to this point, which means what? We're on a journey here. We've come this far. Let's see how far he's going to take us. It's not just a reflection of past success. It's an encouragement to future commitments. Will God continue with us? the prayer is, the answer is yes. Because we're going to trust Him to lead us, to guide us. And this then leads to not just peace in terms of our relationship with God, but peace in other areas of life as well. Verse 14 ends with what? There was also peace between Israel and the Amorites, the Canaanites. God has so moved in their experience. God has brought victory over the Philistines that this resulted not just in peace with the Philistines, but peace with the Canaanites as well, the Amorites as well. When God transforms, He's not just interested in transforming one part of your life, one area of your circumstance. He wants all of it, and He will move in all of it. So returning to our question that we started with, what do we mean by revival? In America, we've had two movements that are known as the Great Awakenings. Others have been suggested, but historians really are only settled on two. The first Great Awakening happened from 1730 to 1740. It involved the preaching of George Whitefield and The Wesley brothers and so forth, it was here in England and in America. But toward the end of the 1700s, the Enlightenment and its thought had really begun to take hold in America. Deism had become the religion of the day. That is, the belief that God has set things in motion and then kind of left. But God began to move, and we had from 1800 to 1840 what's called the Second Great Awakening. And one of the leading preachers of the Second Great Awakening was a man named Finney. He is his revivalism, his preaching was similar to what we would typically think of in terms of uh, flashy and fancy and all those sorts of things, but at the heart of what Finney did was an authentic theology of who God is and what revival is. And this is how Finney defined revival. A revival is nothing else than a new beginning of obedience to God. Not the, it's not the definition we necessarily want, but it's definitely the definition we need. We want to see revival. We need to become obedient. Obedient to what God has revealed, obedient to what God has said, obedient to His Spirit when He moves, obedient in abandoning those things, walking away from those things that led us astray in the first place. Obedient to trusting Him with everything, that He is more precious than anything. Obedient to sharing our faith, communicating His goodness. Today we have come for the Lord's Supper. And I don't think it's accidental that one of the things that Paul marks out in 1 Corinthians 11 as necessary for the Lord's Supper to be what the Lord's Supper is supposed to be, is what? It's an obedient heart. He talks about taking of supper in an unworthy fashion. What does he mean there? Again, there's lots of interpretations. I'm not going to go into them all, but at the heart of all of them is obedience. So as we come to our time of response, the simple question is, am I being obedient? Firstly, am I being obedient in realizing that salvation comes through no other name than through Jesus Christ? And have I surrendered my life, myself, to that reality? Entered into that relationship walked in a newness of life, a a commitment to him. But beyond that and after that, am I walking in a way that acknowledges God's presence, God's role, God's priority? Am I walking in a way that God himself would define as obedient, in attitude and in action? Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. God, as we come to this time of response, I pray that if there's anyone here, firstly, who's ever experienced salvation, that you would draw them, and that they would respond in faith. But I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters here as well, God, that you would help us to, to find revival by committing to obedience. you move in our presence here in a powerful way. Help us to see the work you can do in a life that's surrendered to you completely and totally. Lord, use this time for your purposes, for your glory. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.